0: this morning we're going to be continuing with a story that we began last week and um... in case somebody watching or listening did didn't get a chance to, to hear it um... I'm, want to take just a quick moment just to catch up on where we were at last week the author of judges closes this entire book this this book of judges with one final story that encompasses chapters 19 through 21. I mentioned that, he, that the, in these three chapters it, I guess you can subdivide it into four different subsections. Last week I covered the first two which were the background to the outrage at Gibeah and this part introduced us to the Levite priest and his concubine as well as the hospita- hospitality offered by the, uh, to the Levite, by the concubine's father and also his arrival at Gibeah. The other part we covered was the nature of the outrage at Gibeah. This part told us of the hospitality offered by an old man in Gibeah and the horrific actions of, by the wicked men of Gibeah against the Levite's concubine. And I ended, the story ended last week with how the Levite responded with their wickedness. In those first two subsections in chapter 19, a picture was painted demonstrating how individualized and infectious the Canaanite cancer was in Israel. And it was really displayed in the city of Gibeah. It had become essentially uh, an infected and... A decayed branch in Israel and it was on the verge of completely being broken off and specifically in chapter 19 saw how a people had hit rock bottom the bottom of the moral barrel because of the rejection of God and the lack of central government to enforce his laws now, this week, we have a lot to cover, and if time permits, um, we're, we're going to be covering the last two subsections. Which are the first one is the Israelite response to the outrage at Gibeah. And in this part of the story, the tribes of Israel are ready to respond to the horrendous events of chapter 19. And we take a closer look at what they do about the broken branch. And what we'll see, we'll also see Israel's realization that their real enemy is herself. And in chapter 21, we're gonna see the national crisis caused by the outrage at Gibeah. And in this last chapter of Judges, the conquering tribes scrambled to find a solution to the problem they created after wiping out one of its, after wiping out one of its own, one of the 12 tribes. So what they're gonna try to do is fix the nation's broken branch. Now, although today's story focuses on a nation coming together to deal with the wickedness of one of their own and the problems they face during and afterwards, today's message will also focus on these four points. How we as a church can properly respond to the wickedness around us giving god the credit for every victory he gives us number three being wise when making vows oaths and promises and lastly the importance of knowing that god will never abandon the people he loves now as i said we have a lot to get to this morning so um Let's pray and then ask the Lord to speak to us as we get into his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and you are so glorious, you are so good and the name of Jesus is so sweet and so good. We glorify you, Lord. We honor you. Thank you for sending Jesus to us, Lord. And so now as we open up your word, I pray that we hear from you. Pour your spirit here upon this place so that we can continue to worship you, Lord, with your living word. Show us now what it is that you want to teach us individually and teach us as a church. Lord, we dedicate this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 20, verse 1. All the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out and the community assembled as one body before the Lord Lord at Mitzvah. mitzvah. The leaders of all the people and of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves to the assembly of God's God's people, 400,000 armed foot soldiers. The Benjaminites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mitzvah. The Israelites asked, tell us, how did this evil act hap- happen? The Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, answered, I went to Gibeah in Benjamin with my concubine to spend the night. Citizens of Gibeah came to attack me and surrounded the house at night. They intended to kill me, but they raped my concubine and she died. When I took my concubine, I, I, Then I took my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout Israel's territory because they have committed wicked, a wicked outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are Israelites. Give your judgment and verdict here and now. Then all the people stood united and said, none of us will go to his tent or return to his house. Now, this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We will attack it by lot. By lot, we will take 10 men out of, out of every 100 from all the tribes of Israel and one hundred out of every thousand and one thousand out of ten thousand to get the provisions for the troops when they go to Gibeah in Benjamin to punish them for all the outrage they committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered united against the city. Then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribe of Benjamin saying, What is this evil act that has happened among you? Hand over the wicked men so we can put them to death and eradicate evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. Instead, the Benjamites gathered together from their cities to Gibeah to go out and fight against the Israelites. On that day, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 armed men from their cities besides 700 fit young men rallied rallied by the inhabitants of Gibeah. There were 700 fit young men who were left-handed among all these troops. All could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The Israelites, apart from Benjamin, mobilized 400,000 armed men, every every one an experienced warrior. They set out, went to Bethel, and inquired of God. The Israelites asked, Who is to go to fight for us against the Benjaminites? And the Lord answered, Judah will be first. In the morning, the Israelites set out and camped near Gibeah. The men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin and took their battle positions against Gibeah. The Benjaminites came out of Gibeah and slaughtered 22,000 men of Israel on the field that day. But the Israelite troops rallied and again took their battle positions in the same place where they positioned themselves on the first day they wept up. They went up, wept before the Lord until evening, and inquired of Him, "Should we again attack our brothers, the Benjaminites?" And the Lord answered, "Fight against them." On the second day, the Israelites again advanced against the Benjaminites. That same day, the Benjaminites came out from Gibeah and met them, and slaughtered an additional eighteen thousand Israelites on the field. All were armed. So in this first passage, this first part of the chapter, the author begins to tell us how all the other tribes finally decided to respond to the outraged Gibeah and also and the accounts of the first two battles of this Israeli civil war. Now the first thing that we're told is that Israel assembled as one body before the Lord at Mitzbah to investigate why these body parts were sent out throughout the territory of Israel, throughout the land. Now it's unclear as to why the tribal leaders and 400,000 soldiers met in the Benjamin, Benjaminite town of Mitzbah, but most scholars, most scholars have suggested this. Mitzvah was a recognized sanctuary where the community could meet with their divine Lord. Again, we have to remember that during this time, um, Israel was under occupation. So they could only meet at, in certain places, in certain cities where they can worship, where they can gather together as, as, a, as a people and worship the Lord. Now this place may not be exactly where the Ark of the Covenant was, but again, it was just a place where they can meet, gather, and pray. So while they were gathered there, the Levite priest begins to relate to them, begins to tell them the horrifying testimony of everything that happened to him and his concubine in Gibeah. Now although he tells them about the events that happened there, it appears that he leaves a few things out. He leaves a few details out, I think really just to cover his butt. The priest doesn't mention about his domestic problems that led him to Gibeah. He only mentions that the men of the city wanted to kill him rather than saying they wanted to have sex with him. Furthermore, the Levite doesn't reveal that it was him who grabbed his concubine and sent her out to them possibly, in fear of his life, to save himself. The absence, also, of the Benjamin, Benjaminite tribe during this assembly, their absence, they, in their absence they couldn't defend themselves. They couldn't be there to, to stand up for themselves. So what that did is that it solidified the testimony of the Levite priest and thus their guilt so the tribes all agree that, Benj- that the Benjaminites must be punished. For the first time in this book, all the men stood united. They were, to, they were determined to attack Gibeah in return for the rape, for the mistreatment, for the horror of this Levite's, of, of this Levite's concubine. For everything they did to her there in Gibeah, when the Benjaminites were given the opportunity to give up the evildoers, they chose not to betray their own brothers. So, with uh, their left hand, with their uh, entire left-handed uh, 700 left-handed slingers, all the entire well, the 26,000 plus Benjaminite soldiers came out to wage war against the 400,000 men of all the other tribes. Now, although the odds were against them, they proved to be a much stronger adversary than the tribes ever imagined. Before the first, before the first battle of the Civil War begins, verse 18 tells us that the Israelites And more than likely, these were the priests met at Bethel to inquire of God, to ask him who should lead in battle. On the surface, it seems like the best approach to get God's guidance before they conduct war. But also, this inquiry raises questions. First, the Israelites don't ask, shall we go up against our brother? But who is to go first before us? Or who is to go first to fight for us? second the author here uses the generic designation for god he uses in hebrew he uses in the original language here the word is elohim which again is just the generic term for for designation for god rather than using the more personal designation of yahweh which may suggest that there was a deficiency in their relationship with god But nevertheless, God answers and tells them that Judah will go first, will be first. So why, why Judah? Why them? Well, back in the beginning of Judges, in the first chapter, in the very beginning of the first chapter, God told the entire nation that Judah will be the first nation to lead Israel into the land of Canaan. Therefore, it's it's quite possible that God may have been suggesting that Benjamin was no better than the Canaanites. Also, by repeating Judah as the answer to to the inquiry, these stories highlight key leadership, the key leadership role of Judah among the tribes of Israel. By picturing Judah as the head of the tribes, the narrator is emphasizing The leadership of this tribe, which King David would come from, as well as Jesus. While this first battle of Gibeah doesn't go well for these 11 tribes, verses 19 to 23 inform us that the Benjaminites killed 22,000 of Israel's 400,000 men. Afterwards, a second attempt was made to inquire of God. However, this time they came to Yahweh asking, should we again attack our brothers, the Benjaminites? And once again, the Lord answered by saying, fight against them. Notice that God returned their direct inquiry with a direct response. Now, had they been more specific as to what exactly they were to do, God may have given them a more specific response, but they didn't. The following day, a second attack was organized against the Benjaminites, but the results weren't much better than the first encounter. The victims this time numbered 18,000 Israelites swordsmen. Now for the past few weeks, I've spoken about what a nation and people look like when God has been removed or, it's, or been rejected from all aspects of society. I mentioned that when this happens, God's moral truth becomes irrelevant and each person or group is left to decide for themselves what is and isn't moral or ethical. So for this first part of this uh, this chapter, this first part of this chapter brings up an interesting question. As Christians, and more specifically as a church, how can we respond to the moral decay of our own society? Well, I think these verses may help answer this question. The first thing we ought to do is gather before God in unity. Just as the leaders and the soldiers from every tribe except Benjamin came together at Mitzvah to determine what to do, we too must come together, united as one before God. Whatever it is that's out there, whenever we, you know, whenever we see some kind of moral um, Uh, some kinda moral problem out there or something that you know uh, an injustice or whatever it is we need to be we need to come together united as one whether it's before church after church during the week whatever it is my home somebody else's home we need to come together and be united we're told in first Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 now I urge you brothers and sisters In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. I believe that when we come together to address something that is morally wrong in our community, God will give us the wisdom on how or if we should act. The second thing we ought to do is patiently wait for guidance on God's plan. What the tribes here were doing was right. The Benjaminites should have been punished for their wickedness, but they weren't seeking to the Lord as to the method and the manner in which they should go. It can be very easy to say Hey, this cause or that cause, it's, it's right. We need to do something about it and immediately react to, the, to an evil in the community without considering. It may not be agor- according to the plan of God. There are a lot of things, I, and like I do, I agree, there are a lot of things that need to be done, but it's important that we see, that we seek the Lord on how to do it. We must make sure that we're led by the Spirit of God, even in the right things that we seek to do. Because you know what? It's very possible to seek to do the right thing in the wrong way. And the Bible is full of examples of that happening. People wanting to do the right thing but doing it the wrong way chuck smith once said i think that one of the most important lessons that we need to learn is not to develop a plan and then try to get god on our side but seek to find the mind and the will and the plan of god and then go at it according to god's plan proverbs 19 says Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And lastly, the third thing we ought to do is remain persistent even in defeat. Twice the Lord directed Israel to fight the Benjaminites and twice they lost big time. Did they give up and go home? And they say, and say, this is we've lost 22,000. What, 22 plus 18, um, 30,000 men? Should we just give up and go home? No. After each loss, they came before God again, more humbled and more broken. If God directs us as a church to speak out or take action, we mustn't give up on seeking his guidance even if we suffer temporary defeats listen to to the word of god i mean listen here to what god said in isaiah 55:11 my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty but it will be accomplished but it will be accomplished what i please and will prosper in what i send it to do Sometimes, God allows certain defeats to occur to teach us a valuable lesson about ourselves or about Him. But if we easily give up and just go home, we'll not only lose out on these valuable lessons, but we'll miss out on the victory He intended to give us. So persistence is important. All right. So now let's let's read about the third time they go before the Lord after the second defeat. Judges chapter 20 verse 26. The whole Israelite army went to Bethel where they wept and sat before the Lord They fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Then the Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there, and Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, was serving before it. The Israelites asked, Should we again fight against our brothers, the Benjaminites, or should we stop? The Lord answered, Fight! Fight! because I will hand them over to you tomorrow. So Israel set up an ambush around Gibeah. On the third day, the Israelites fought against the Benjaminites and took their battle positions against Gibeah as before. Then the Benjaminites came out against the troops and were drawn away from the city. They began to attack the troops as before, killing about 30 men of Israel on the highways one of one which goes up to Bethel, and the other to Gibeah, through the open country. The Benjaminites said, We are defeating them as before. But the Israelites said, Let's flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. So all the men of Israel got up from their places and took their battle positions at Baal Tamar, while the Israelites while while the Israelites in ambush charged out of their places west of Giba, Then 10,000 fit young men from all Israel made a frontal assault against Gibeah and the battle was fierce, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was about to strike them. The Lord defeated Benjamin in the presence of Israel and on that day the Israelites slaughtered 25,100 men of Benjamin. All were armed. Then the Benjaminites realized they had been defeated. The men of Israel had retreated before Benjamin because they were confident in the ambush they had set against Gibeah. The men in ambush had rushed quickly against Gibeah. They advanced and put the whole city to the sword. The men of Israel had a prearranged signal with the men in ambush. When they sent up a great cloud of smoke from the city, the men of Israel would return to the battle. When Benjamin had begun to strike, strike them down, killing about 30 men of Israel, they said, they're defeated before us just as they were in the first battle. When the column of smoke began to go up before the city, Benjamin looked behind him, and the whole city was going up in smoke. Then the men of Israel returned, and the men of Benjamin were terrified when they realized the disaster that had struck them. They retreated before the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the city slaughtered those between them. They surrounded the Benjaminites, pursued them, and easily overtook them near Gibeah toward the east. There, there were 18,000 men who died from Benjamin. All were warriors. Then Benjamin turned and fled towards the wilderness to the, to Rim and Rock. And Israel killed 5,000 men on the highways. They overtook them at, at Gittim and struck 2,000 more dead. All the Benjaminites who died that day were 25,000 armed men, all were warriors but 600 men escaped into the wilderness to rim and rock and stayed there four months. The men of Israel turned back against the other Benjamites Benjaminites, and killed them with their swords, the entire city, the animals, everything that remained. They also burned all the cities that remained. The second unexpected and devastating defeat now leads them to a third inquiry, a third and final inquiry of Yahweh. This time the entire army returns to Bethel where now they not only weep before Yahweh, before the Lord, but also fast and present offerings to Him as they inquire of God. The author also notes that the Ark of the Covenant is present and Phineas, a prominent priest, is there to mediate and inquire of God on their behalf. The question the Israel ask of Yahweh is even more explicit than the former ones, beginning as a second inquiry, but then adding the explicit or should we stop at the, at the end of that verse, at the end of their inquiry? And the response from Yahweh is the clearest of all three. Not only does he command them to engage the Benjaminites in battle, but for the first time he also promises the Israelites' victory. I will hand them over to you tomorrow. Now, in order to make time to cover the next chapter, I'm not going to go through all the details of this third and final battle besides this. This tactical battle, I mean the tactics here, the battle here almost looks exactly, almost similar to the battle that took place in Ai. And that story is is found in Joshua chapter 7 and 8. It's almost the same. Even the burning of Gibeah, Is similar to AI however there's an important verse here that is often overlooked but can't but we can't afford to miss in verse 35 it says the Lord defeated Benjamin in the presence of Israel the credit for this victory must go to Yahweh must go to the Lord alone must go to Yahweh who struck the Benjaminite forces ahead of Israel. God's intervention was the sole reason the Israelites routed the Benjaminites. When God gives us victory over our physical and spiritual enemy, we need to be careful not to claim any credit for it. For example, let's just say that, that God led us as a church to have a drug infested park to be cleaned up and it was accomplished. Or let's say he led us to, you know, there's a strip club down the street and, you know, there's all kinds of immoral behavior going on there and, you know, he led us as a church to have that place shut down. And it was, and whether it was the park that was infested with drugs or a strip club or whatever it is, and it was accomplished. Let's say it was accomplished. A victory like that shouldn't be credited to us, but instead, all the credit should be given to God. You see, He was the one who led us to go there, to fight against, that, that immoral behavior, that place, fir- well, in the first place, he was the one who guided us to go out and do something about it and, and, and guided us as we went, you know, through that process. He was the one who strengthened us when we felt like, you know, we just didn't have the numbers or we didn't have the, you know, we just didn't have the people to do it. He was the one who encouraged us when just it just seemed it was a pointless and senseless cause. And he was the one who fought for us to ultimately grant to ultimately give us that victory. You see God's will and purpose, and therefore any and all glory <coughs> and all glory should be given to him. This is also true for every single spiritual victory He gives you, whether it's an addiction, whether it's anger, whether it's depression, whether it's sexual sin, you overcame and were victorious because of Him. Because if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest and truthful, we know that in and of ourselves, we, don't, we didn't have the strength. We don't have the power. We're powerless and weak over those addictions, over those negative emotions, over that sexual sin. They're more powerful than us. Romans 8.37 says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us the moment we for- we begin to forget this and we start to give ourselves the credit it won't be long before you're overcome with that sin again and you're in bondage to it i can't forget it and maybe many of you are here or watching or listening know that uh, you know it's only a matter of time before I'm in bondage again if I if I keep my focus off of God and I start to give myself credit and I start to say hey you know what I had the strength I did it myself so after two old days the unified tribes Ruthlessly, killed thousands of men. And when the dust settled, Benjamin suffered the loss of all but 600 of their men. Their escape to rim and rock will prepare us for the story of survival of the tribe of Benjamin in the next and final chapter of this book. So let's go there now. Judges chapter 21. The men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mitzpah. None of us will give his daughter to the Benjaminites in marriage. So the people went to Bethel and sat there before God until evening. They wept loudly and bitterly and cried out, Why, Lord God of Israel, has this occurred? That one tribe is missing in Israel today. The next day the people got up early, built an altar there, and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. The Israelites asked, "Who of all the tribes of Israel didn't come up to the Lord with the assembly? For a great oath had been taken that anyone who had come, who had not come to the Lord at Mitzvah would certainly be put to death." But the Israelites had compassion on their brothers, the Benjaminites, and said, "Today a tribe has been cut off from Israel. What should we do about the wives for the survivors?" We've sworn to the Lord not to give any of our daughters as wives. They asked, which city among the tribes of Israel didn't come out to the Lord at mitzvah? It turned out that no one but Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp and the assembly. For when the roll was called, no men were there from the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. The congregation sent 12,000 brave warriors there and commanded them go and kill the inhabitants of Jabesh gilead with the sword including women and dependents this is what you should do completely destroy every male as well as every woman who has gone to bed with a man they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh gilead 400 young virgins who had not gone to bed with a man and they brought into the camp of shiloh in the land of canaan Sent a message of peace to the Benjaminites who were at Rimmon Rock. Benjamin returned at that time, and Israel gave them the women they had kept alive from Jabesh Gilead, but there were not enough for them. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made this gap in the tribes of Israel. The elders of the congregation said, "What should we do about the wives for those who are left? Since the women, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed." They said there must be heirs for the survivors of Benjamin, so that tribe, so that the tribe of Israel will not of Benjamin, so that a tribe of Israel will not be- can't give them our daughters as wives, for the Israelites had sworn anyone who gives a wife to the Benjaminites to the Benjaminite is cursed. They also said, look, there's an annual festival to the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Lebanon. Then they commanded the Benjaminites, go and hide in the vineyards. Watch, and when you see the young women of Shiloh come out to perform the dances, each of you leave the vineyards and catch a wife for yourself from the young women of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. When their fathers or brothers come to us to protest, we will tell them, show favor to them, since we we did not get enough wives for each of them in battle. You didn't actually give the women to them, so you're not guilty of breaking your oath. The Benjaminites did this and took the number of women they needed from the dances they caught. They went back to their own inheritance, rebuilt their cities, and lived in them. At that time, each of the Israelites returned from there to his own tribe and family. Each returned from there to his own inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel everyone did whatever seemed right to him again long chapter here but I mean this the end of the story it's it's just as crazy as as all the other stories about what happened here with with Benjamin in Gibeah in this final chapter the author explains to us how a nation resolve the problem and how on how to reconstruct a tribe on the verge of extinction when the horror of what just cha- what just happened in chapter 19 becomes clear to the men of Israel they despaired at the loss of one of their brothers at the loss of the tribe of Benjamin from the an- from their ancestral 12 12 tribes they were broken and they wept and they cried and man one of our own one of our brothers is about to be extinct but regrettably before they even come up with a plan to what about what to do about this travesty they first the first thing they do is swear an oath that none of their daughters would marry a Benjaminite. Now back then, oaths or vows were legally binding. They were legally binding before men and they were legally binding before God and they had to be kept regardless of the circumstances. Anyone caught Breaking an oath or a vow would face severe punishment. Now, considering their anger against the Benjaminites, this probably seemed like the right thing to do. But this foolish oath had unforeseen circumstances or consequences. Church. This here is a good example of why you should be careful when making emotionally driven oaths, promises and vows that you may not be able to keep. It behooves you to take the time to think about what those vows mean and who you're making them to, especially if you're making a vow before God. The Bible really warns us against making vows and sort of, discourage, sort of discourages the taking of vows before God. And what I'm talking about here is saying, is, Lord, if you do this for me or if this happens, I promise I'm going to do this. If you get me out of this hole, out of this financial crisis, out of this, awful marriage or whatever it may be like this crazy situation I promise I'm gonna go to church every Sunday I promise I'm gonna donate all my my money to an orphanage you see it isn't necessary to promise God you're gonna do something in order to obtain God's favor in fact you're more apt to receive from God not promising that you'll do something for him but just upon the mercy of God and the grace of God. Nevertheless, it says in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verses 21 to 23, if you make a vow to the Lord, your God, do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you, and it will be counted against you as sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips because you have freely vowed that what you promise to the Lord, your God. Now one vow that all of us, many people often make before God but have a hard time keeping is the marriage vow. The reason for this is because they don't understand or ever considered that the promises made to another prom- to another person has also been made before God. This is why I've always told my kids and frankly anybody that has come to me about and they're considering about getting married to make sure that whoever they want to marry or whoever they God you know, has um, put in their hearts to marry that they know, that they understand that they're going to be with this person for the rest of their lives. You see promises, vows, and oaths are easy to make when the person making them doesn't understand the meaning or the weight behind them. But those who do will make every effort to keep them because they value God and they value being obedient to Him. You see politicians or anybody putting their hand on the Bible and making an oath, they're they're making an oath before God. So yeah, we should hold them accountable whenever they break that oath. But man, you know, I, I really think that those who don't understand God, who don't see the seriousness of these promises and oaths, you know, they, they're not going to take these promises seriously. I know that for myself, it was difficult when I first got married, and Robin will tell you that it was. I didn't understand what it was to really, you know, make promises. I It was easy for me to say it, but I didn't understand the weight of it. And because of that, it caused a lot of problems. She suffered, I suffered. I didn't know what it meant to keep a vow. But thanks, you know, I thank God now that he showed me the importance of these vows, of our marriage vows. Now, since all the towns of Benjamin had been destroyed and virtually everyone killed, and since the men of Israel had vowed not to give their daughters to the surviving Benjaminites, they had, seri- they had a serious problem with how to deal with them now. They now had to deal with this serious problem. Should they completely cut off the tribe and let them die off? Should you just, instead of 12 tribes, should there just be 11 tribes? And completely let the Benjaminites go extinct or figure out a way to revive the tribe of Benjamin and ensure their survival well they decide on saving them from being wiped out of exi- existence and after building an altar and offering burnt offerings they came up with an initial plan of action first they'd, identify, they'd identify who did not respond to the invitation to assemble in Mitzvah. And secondly, they make another oath stating that anyone who did not respond would certainly be put to death. Verses 8 and 9 inform us that Jabesh Gilead had been absent from the assembly in Mitzvah. A quick decision was made to kill everyone in that town except the young virgins who were then given to the men of Benjamin. The Benjaminite survivors at Rimmon Rock gladly accept this peace offering. But unfortunately for them, there wasn't enough women. There wasn't enough wives. So the other tribes get together and they're like, okay, what are we going to do about this? Man, we can't let them die off. We need to give them wives. So, they come up with this other plan to offer additional wives from the annual dances that occurred there in Shiloh. Now, because of the oath that no family would give their daughters to Benjamin, the survivors were told to ambush ambush the girls they needed from Shiloh. If they did this, then the parents would be absolved from the responsibility of giving the girls in marriage they would be resolved from that responsibility of of having to keep their oath this highly unorthodox method of reconstruct reconstituting reconst- that a tribe apparently worked for Benjamin continued in existence until the Assyrian dep- deportation in 722 BC and additionally It was from the tribe of Benjamin that another important figure later on, another important figure in our Bible came from later on. Do you know who that was? It was Saul, King Saul. This appalling episode also points the central theme. Without a great king, the people of God can have no stability. This chapter and this book ends with the familiar words, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. This final verse highlights the problem during the time of Judges. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, It is impossible to read this appendix to the book of Judges and especially the closing part of it, without being impressed with how sad is the condition of any people who act without some definitely fixed principle. Passion moves purpose only as it is governed by principle. Nevertheless, this last verse also points to a future day when a righteous king would come and lead Israel. To love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and might, and to love their neighbor as their own, as themselves. Throughout this entire book, the author shows us what a nation and its people look like when God has been taken from the driver's seat and put in the trunk of the car, to, or the trunk of any vehicle. We were also given stories of a few faithful men who took over as reasonably good drivers, but never really managed to put God back into the driver's, w- and, uh, put God back at the driver's wheel. Yet the truth is that God never, was never locked up in the trunk and was in the passenger seat the entire time watching and waiting for his people to ask for help. And every time he helped them, and every time he did something for them, it was because of his grace, his love, and his mercy. In spite of Israel's disobedience, rebelliousness, and wickedness, they were still his people who he promised never to abandon. And this fact is even true to this day while we're living in the church age. Even now, God has not abandoned Israel. God has not abandoned his people. He has a future plan for them. And he will, you know, the Bible tells us that eventually his people will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as the Messiah. Now, although it may appear that the society in which we live in today looks and acts no different than it did throughout the story of Judges, throughout the entire story of Judges, God will not abandon, has not, abandoned, has not abandoned us either. No matter how hard people try to lock him in the trunk, He's still in the passenger seat, waiting for us to tell him to take the driver's seat. And some of you may be familiar with this verse, but God said this in 2 Corinthians—I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles 7:14: "If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven." and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In order for this to happen, we must be willing to boldly speak the truth of the gospel, not in anger, in condemnation, but in the same way Jesus Christ presented it, the same way He talked about the gospel, and the same way the apostles did it. And how do they do that? In love, in grace, and compassion. There may be some of you here who feel as though you've lost control of the vehicle of your life. And see it heading towards the end of a cliff. Well, let me tell you that your life story doesn't have to end in tragedy. God hasn't abandoned you. His Son, Jesus Christ, is in your passenger seat waiting for you, waiting to take over. All you have to do is unbuckle yourself, release the tight grip of the steering wheel, surrender your seat to Him, and just trust Him. Trust and believe that he knows what he's doing and where he's taking you. Jesus said in John 14one do don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. If that's you and you're ready to do that and you've come to a point where you realize, you know what? I need Jesus. I need Jesus in my, in my life. I've messed up. Let me tell you that we have a God who wants to restore you. He, who, he wants to just give you life. He, he wants to forgive you of your sins. That's why He sent His Son to die on the cross for you. you can receive that forgiveness, you can receive that love, you can receive that compassion. He will forgive you of all your sins if you just believe and trust in Him. And if you're listening, watching, and you're ready to do that, with a sincere heart, pray this from the bottom of your heart. Lord Jesus, I come before you and confess that I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross and that God raised you from the dead. I now ask that you forgive me of my sins and be my Lord and savior. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. If you've prayed that, let us know, call us, talk to us, email us, let, let us know you know what, how we can continue to pray for you, how we can continue to minister to you. We want you to grow in your walk with the Lord. We don't want you just to fall by the wayside, find a good church, a Bible teaching church that will teach you the Bible, that will not put on a show, a performance. That will just, you know, where someone is just up there giving you a motivational speech. Someone who's going to teach you the Word of God. The entire Word of God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, message here is heavy. There's a lot here, Lord, that It's difficult to, to chew, to swallow. But Lord, that's who you are. You're not a God that just is a feel-good God, Lord. You You touch right at the heart. You touch us right where we need it. You speak the truth to us, Lord, even when it hurts. But yet, it's a good hurt, Lord, because we know that you're a forgiving God. We know that you're a loving God. And regardless of the mistakes that we've made, all the times we've screwed up, that we know that you've forgiven us. We know that you will forgive us. we we are so thankful for that Lord help us be bold for you help us be to be your witnesses in this community in our homes in our schools wherever we may be Lord let us not be ashamed of the Gospel, of your Word. Let us live it out, Lord. Give us the strength to do that. I pray for this nation. I pray for this, our leaders here, Lord. That they may come to know you, that, there be, that they may come to understand you, your saving, your saving knowledge, Lord. Or this nation needs you, this country needs you. Lord, heal this land, heal this nation. Bless this next time of fellowship, Lord. May we just honor you with our words. May we just comfort one another, encourage one another, Lord. Be with us now, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.